Ray Dalio is one of the most influential investors in the world today. He started his company, Bridgewater, out of his two-bedroom apartment in New York City in 1975 and has grown it into the world's largest hedge fund. Dalio is the author of the New York Times' number one bestseller, Principles, Life and Work, in which he shares a blueprint for success, personal and professional. Dalio is an active philanthropist and conservationist with a special interest in ocean exploration and conservation. I'm pleased to bring in our next guest, Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest and most profitable hedge fund firm. Ray is also a well-known philanthropist and an author of multiple books. Ray, it's great to have you with us. So nice to be here. I mentioned at the top that you're an author of multiple books, and I know that you're writing one now called The Changing World Order, and you've been talking about three forces at play that were here pre-pandemic. Would love for you to share your worldview with our viewers and listeners. Um, yeah, I do, I do research, um, and so I, this is a study that I've been doing, and then I decided to share it with people because I think it's uh, so important. Um, yeah. Um, a number of years ago, first with 2008, we got into a monetary situation, of course, where we're printing money, creating a lot of debt, monetizing it. Um, and then um, populism emerged around the world. And um, President um, Trump, who was more of a populist, emerged. And we, it affected tax policy. It affected markets in a lot of different ways. And that uh, led me to realize that there are th three big things that are going on in the world um, that are dominant. And then co COVID came along. Those three forces are first, the long-term debt and monetary cycle, which I mean um, the creating a lot of debt, monetizing it, and the implications of that, which reverberate through the system in terms of all the markets and everything. The second um, is uh, this conflict, this polarization, this wealth gap, and how we're at each other's throats. And I looked at the wealth gap, and I looked at a lot of measures of conflict going back in time, and I found that it, they were in the 1930 to 45 period. The printing of money, as I described, and debt monetization was also in the 1930 to 45 period. And the third big influence is the rise of China, so the rise of a great power, challenging an existing great power, the United States. And that has enormous implications. As an investor, I think, what are the relative appeals of the markets, but it, it has a lot of implications. It's not just a trade war. So the markets and everything were reverberating the trade war, the technology war, the geopolitical war in Taiwan and the South China Seas, and, um, and then also the capital war. We're seeing that emerge. So those three factors required me to then go back in history. And I, I wanted to study the rises and declines of reserve currency empires. So I needed to go back far enough that I would have a few. So I had to go back 500 years so I could see the rise and decline of the Dutch empire, and its reserve currency, the rise and decline of the British Empire and its reserve currency, the rise and beginning of decline for the United States and its reserve currency, and China. And that's, so those are the forces, and that's what I did, which you're referring to. And that, by the way, that's available 
for anybody to read on LinkedIn. So, so to recap, it's the high levels of debt, extremely low interest rates, um, the large wealth gaps and political divisions, and uh, the rising world power, which was China um, versus this kind of overextended power being the U.S. And I just heard you say, Ray, um, in that thesis there that you said this was the most analogous to the 1930, 1945 time period. Of course, we go back in history, we, we understand what happened. And that, that sounds really concerning. Well, it is, it is really concerning. And when I, it's even more concerning when I went back to find the 500 years and the times that repeated over and over again. And what I found was um, there's a cycle. There's a big cycle. You know, you start a new world order. In 1945, we began a world order after the war. They decided how the world would be divided. They created the dollar as the world's reserve currency and so on. And then, um, because there's so much fighting and, there's, and then you've established a power that uh, is a dominant power, you have a period of peace and prosperity. And then that gets extrapolated and it leads to more debt. Fear of bad times diminishes. Opportunities of borrowing and getting in debt, particularly if you have a reserve currency, because the world wants to save in that reserve currency. And that gets the country deeper and deeper in debt. And so you have those debt increases and you have bubbles, but you have prosperity. And bubbles are really fun. They're really enjoyable. They're great. But then you get to the point that there is a limitation to that. And those limitations start become apparent when the central bank can't easily produce money and credit. That starts when you hit zero interest rates, because then you can't do it the same. Okay, then you go to what, that's monetary policy one is interest rate monetary policy. When that doesn't work anymore, you go to the next type of monetary policy, which is printing money and buying financial assets. But that financial purchases of financial assets, another thing, widen the wealth gap because those who have financial assets do better than those who don't have financial assets. And you have a wider and wider wealth gap. And when you have that wider wealth gap, and then you have another downturn in an economy, that's a formula for a lot of conflict. And so that's what we see. So what does a central bank then do? It, 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 if it taxes, it takes money out of the economy to, it's, that's not good, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And if it cuts expenses, that's worth, that's a problem. So the central bank always through history, this goes back literally thousands of years, the central bank um, or the entity that controls money then prints more money. Because Think of it, we got all those checks in the mail and we needed to get all those checks in the mail, but um, it, you, you can't take it away from anybody. So where does it come from and what are the implications? So that happens for logical reasons. And it often happens at the same time as there's a rising power externally as a competitor, which is um, a challenge in that environment. So yes, it's, a, um, it's, 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 it's one of those times. And I think people are not aware of it because um, I learned uh, from my experiences that um, many things that happened in my lifetime that surprised me never happened in my lifetime before, but they happened many times before. And in history, 
and that if I would go back in history, I could see that. The first time that happened was in uh, 1971. I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and Richard Nixon gets in front uh, of the camera and um, says, we're not going to give you the gold, and devalues the dollar. And, and, and I w walked on the floor of the stock exchange. I figured there was a big crisis. And I walked on the floor of the stock exchange, and the stock market was up 4% which was the most in a couple of decades. And I said, wow, that's surprising. And then I found out that um, Roosevelt did the exact same thing on March 5th, 1933. And what was done in those two times is the same thing that was done on April 9th of this year when the federal government and the Federal Reserve decided to produce a lot more money and credit. So yes, you need these perspectives, and I want to pass that along, which is why I'm passing along that research on the LinkedIn piece. Yeah, and it's always interesting, especially when you mentioned a mistake that uh, 1971 on the floor of the stock exchange, what you thought was happening or going to happen, and it didn't. So you looked back in history and did this deep study. Uh, a couple of things I'd like to kind of double click on here, Ray, um, monetary policy, you were just talking about monetary policy one, monetary policy two, and uh, you know, when you think about what's happened, first you had the low, low interest rates, you couldn't, you couldn't go any lower, so then you had to purchase the financial assets. You mentioned it benefits the wealthier, um, the wealthier because they own the stocks. So I guess are we exacerbating wealth inequality here, and do we need a rethink of monetary policy that's more targeted, that actually can help stimulate those who really need it. Well, that's what monetary policy three is. So monetary policy one is uh, interest rate based. Monetary policy two is the classic quantitative easing. Federal Reserve buys or central banks buy financial assets. Monetary policy three, which is now what we are seeing and what is needed, is um, the production of that debt um, through government borrowing and the government direction of those checks to those who need it most. That's what we just saw. And that being then monetized by the central banks. And so we're in a new era, okay, of monetary policy three, as I call it. Monetary policy three will mean that the free market will play a much less role it, it'll, uh, in determining those capital market flows, that the government, as we come into the, the future, will be thinking, how do I get that money to those who need it the most? So it'll be a highly political decision, much more political than it was in the past, and that the central bank then will monetize those political decisions. So monetary policy three means there's that type of cooperation cooperation. So, so those are the two dimensions of the big, big change environment. You're going to see um, much more government influence and direction of where money goes, which will have a big impact on not only the economy, but of markets. You have to watch what they're going to spend their money on, and they have to watch where they're going to get their money from, what taxes and so on means. The government will play a bigger, bigger role. And it also means that there'll be much more debt that is monetized. And that has implications for the value of financial assets. It has impl implications for the value of the currencies and so on. 
Let's unpack that further, the monetization of the debt the, uh, and what the implications could be. I mean, you're talking about, you know, of course, when we think about the U.S., we have the world's reserve currency. That sounds like that status is very much, uh, I guess, is it under threat here? Is that what you're essentially saying? Yes. Um, if you look at those arcs, there are many characteristics of those, but um, when you get to the end of the arc, um, if money is hard, when it was connected to gold or it was gold, they always broke that link. Um, and, they and if it was soft, they would always print more money. And you can't raise living standards by, raise, by printing more money. You can redistribute it. Certainly the money that is being received by those in the form of checks and they go out and spend it helps their living standards. But it, what it does is it diminishes the value of that cash and it diminishes the value of bonds because bonds are a promise to receive a lot of currency. And it shifts wealth to financial assets. It always sends stocks higher, like my 1971 level lesson. It always sends gold higher. And it also always shifts uh, the impact of currency. So when we're looking at this, um, we're going to also see, I think, the rise of the, the increased importance of China's renminbi as a currency. It's got a long way to go before it's going to be a reserve currency. But I think that one of the important things to see is that you're going to see favorable capital flows for China. And, you're, and if you do a comparison of their markets, what, where their interest rates are, where their capital markets, who's doing IPOs, you know, nearly half of the IPOs, depending, we'll find out, but something like 45% of the IPOs that there will be done in China's markets, Shanghai and Hong Kong this year, new offerings, that'll drive cap. And more and more, you're going to see the internationalization of the renminbi, you're going to see capital flows move in those directions. And those kind of analogous movements have repeated through history. And then I guess tying it back to, you know, the investors who are watching, a lot of retail investors, a lot of folks who are my generation as well, how should they be thinking about this? It sounds like, you know, the kind of, I guess, the outperformance that we've seen in the U.S. stock market for so long, they need to kind of think beyond the U.S. Is that what I'm also hearing? Well, I think first, the most important thing um, is to realize first, uh, cash is a risky asset. Um, I think so many people think if I go to cash, I'm going to be safe because it's much less volatile. But please realize in this environment of producing a lot more cash, uh, the real returns go down. It's a seductive um, risk, risky asset because let's say relative to inflation, you might get taxed 2% a year, and as you're taxed 2% a year, that's a huge amount of money over time, but it's a subtle tax. So first, watch that. Think about, okay, currency issue or the value of money issue. Then in terms of that, yes, you want to diversify to storeholds of wealth. And it, what it, the number one, the second big thing is diversify well. Diversify well um, into um, diversify of asset classes, but diversify of countries, diversify currencies. So think about diversification. If you diversify well, 
you lower your risk without lowering your expected returns, if you know how to do, do that well. But I would say, you know, uh, what are the three main things? I don't know. Diversify, 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 I would say. Um, so I would say th those would be kind of the main headlines um, that I'd like to pass. And of course, you know, we're heading into an election and it's just a matter of days. And you have to wonder some of the themes that we've talked about here, whether it's the, the wealth gaps, the political gaps, the, the, the um, populist on, on the left and the right. How do you think about the election and the, I guess the scenarios, the probabilities and how that might play into some of these bigger themes that we have talked about earlier? Um, well, first of all, uh, I think like what is the most important thing for the United States? Um, and I think um, the, the most important thing of the United States uh, is to do the fundamental things right. We'll talk about that in a second. And also to come together. I'm, I'm, I'm most concerned about one side trying to beat the other side um, and doing damage because history has shown that when you get those gaps, uh, those uh, wealth gaps and the values gaps and anger, you do get demonstrations, you get do get violence, and you can move to the point that the respect for the system uh, is not good. I have a uh, you know a principle which is when the causes that people are behind are more important to them than the system, the system is in jeopardy. So the, the bringing, it, bringing it together and making sure that we can do that, I think, is of paramount importance. Then what are the fundamentals? The fundamentals, there's so many important fundamentals, but let me go through the important ones. Um, are you going to earn more than you spend so that you're going to build, to, we as a country, are we going to earn more than we spend so that we build our balance sheets um, that's important for every individual, for every company, for every organization, and for every government. Uh, you can judge the health, by, the financial health by those things. Then you have to go to the fundamentals that produce those things. And they start with educating your children well, broad-based, I think, broad-based, good public education, and civility. When I say education, I don't just mean, uh, do you know how to read and write and all of those things? That's very important, of course. But also to behave civilly with each other because societies that row in the same direction with a common mission, like an American dream, uh, work better. And so I believe uh, it starts with education and, and you know the basics, basically. Not what I was lucky to have. I went to a public school. I had parents who cared for me, took, loved me and took, took, taught me some values and so much. Those things are the most important fundamentals, save more than, you know, those things. If we can do that, that will be the most important thing because wherever we are in, in relation to China or any place is going to be dependent on how we are with ourselves to do those fundamental things correctly. Ray Dalio, founder of Bridgewater Associates, thank you so much.